The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. It's really great to be here this morning and uh, to open God's Word. If you have your Bibles, take them out. And we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 5 today, so you can turn there. I want to read that text. We'll be starting in verse 21 and then going through the end of the chapter, and then I'll pray at the end of that. So, so be prepared for that. Turn to Mark 5, 21. But I also want to read another text of Scripture right before Mark 5 and before we pray, and that is actually from Leviticus chapter 15. So I'm going to read this little paragraph in Leviticus 15, then I'll just go over to Mark 5, 21 through 43, and you can follow along there. And remember, as I'm reading all of this, Leviticus and Mark 5, this is God's Word. Uh, Leviticus 15, 19, when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening, and everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean, everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if a man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days. And every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. And then turning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, picking up in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, uh, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And 
when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray together and then look at this text. Our God and Heavenly Father, as we have already confessed in our song, you are indeed holy. As we have also already requested, we ask you even now that you would feed us from your holy word. We thank you for giving us your word. We would be in the dark if you hadn't revealed yourself to us in and through it. And so thank you for this revelation, which is from you. Thank you that it's reliable, that it's truthful, that it's alive and active. Thank you for the promises that accompany it, for the promises of the work of your spirit through your word. We ask that he would do his work in our midst even now, convicting us of sin and training us in righteousness, equipping us for every good work, and pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most uh, telling things about a person, one of the things that gives you the greatest insight into someone's character is how they treat people who uh, can't offer them anything who are beneath them in some way, either socially or, or economically. Perhaps you've seen this play out in the lives of people that you've observed. You've seen people who can be very courteous, very kind, very interested in one person, uh, but then when someone else enters their path, they, they, they treat them like nothing. They dismiss them. They, they kick them aside. Maybe, maybe you've even found yourself doing that. Maybe you've had to think about the way in which you've behaved towards someone else. Sometimes you can see this very quickly happen. You can, you can see someone who uh, wants to uh, become, ha- engage in a relationship with an individual, and then as soon as they realize that that person has nothing to offer them, they immediately discard them immediately dispense with that relationship. That juxtaposition between how we treat people who have something to offer us and how we treat people who we perceive have nothing to offer us is a very telling thing about our lives. And that's one aspect of what's happening in this chapter. You probably noticed as I read that this chapter has an unusual kind of structure to it. It begins with one story, then it switches to a second account, and then it comes back to the first story. Uh, Some commentators have tried to describe this for us. Some have said it's it's like a sort of split-screen view. You're watching this, and then you're watching that, and then you're back to this. And that might be helpful. Some have, have said it's a kind of sandwich that you have one side, and then the other side, and then in the center, you've got really the heart of the whole thing. And that really gets, I think, at what Mark is doing here. Mark is doing this intentionally. He's, of course, giving us an account of what happened on this day to the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's giving an account in such a way 
that we notice both similarities and differences between these accounts of healing. You'll notice the first account of healing begins in verse 21. It starts in verse 21, although it doesn't finish until the end of the chapter. And the first account involves someone who was very prominent in the community in which Jesus was ministering. It refers to this man in verse 22 as one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Now we don't know a lot about Jairus, but we do know a little bit about what it meant to be a ruler of the synagogue. Uh, we know that rulers of the synagogue in this time were typically uh, what we would call lay people in the community who, who were, uh, in a sense, elected to this position of being in charge of all that happened in the synagogue. They were in charge of, usually, the public worship that would happen in the synagogue, and in charge with the furnishings, in charge with the material upkeep of the synagogues. Of the synagogue. It was an honorary title. It was something that was given to people who were well known, well respected, well loved, usually wealthy within the partic a particular community. And so it's this kind of person who first approaches Jesus and he approaches him with the most serious kind of request. He says in verse 22, he fell at his feet, and verse 23 tells us he implored him earnestly. Because, he said, my little daughter is at the point of death. And we can't imagine the kind of emotional anguish that Jairus would have been undergoing at this time. Uh, this little girl, we learn later that she was 12 years of age. This little girl was dying and there was nothing he could do despite all of his power, despite all of his respectability, his religiosity, his wealth. Despite all of that, there was nothing he could do for this little girl. He was watching her die. And so he comes to Jesus in desperation and, and falls at Jesus' feet and asks Jesus to help. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus uh, says nothing to him by way of assurance, but he simply went with him in verse 24. That's split screen number one. Jesus is helping someone who has an urgent need. Jesus is helping someone who has a degree of respectability within the town. And Jesus is going to his house to heal his daughter. Now, at the same time, it says a great crowd followed him. And in the midst of that, we have the second encounter that Jesus engages with in this chapter. And the second encounter is of an entirely different order of magnitude. The contrasts are very striking. They're pronounced. Mark wants us to notice these contrasts. We're moving from a man who had all kinds of religious respectability to a woman who, in this case, had no network of friends, no network of family that we're aware of, and was, in fact, even by the standards of the law, utterly unclean because of this issue of blood that it says in verse 25, she had had for 12 years. Now, I read the passage from Leviticus 15 earlier, and I didn't even read the whole passage. It goes into greater detail about the, the degree of difficulty that this, was, this would create for a woman in this kind of situation. But suffice it to say, I read enough that you get the picture. She was 
she had to be in the Jewish community a, a kind of outcast. In fact, she had to be an outcast to such a degree that anyone who touched her would themselves have been unclean for a week. So not only was she herself ceremonially unclean, not only was she herself unable to enter into the temple or engage in any of the normal religious festivals of Judaism, but not only that, she, anyone that she touched would be forbidden from those things. So, so it made her an, an utter outcast. And not only that, but while she had sought help, Mark tells us that she had suffered much under the hands of physicians and spent all her money doing it. So this was a woman who had no one. This was a woman who, in terms of people's perceptions, was not only isolated from community, uh, she was, in terms of their perceptions, isolated from God himself. And, and more than that, every attempt that she had made, every desperate attempt that she had made, had made things worse and not better, so that at the point she reaches out to Jesus, she had no money, no hope, things were getting worse and not better, and, and no one to turn to. Now what it says in verse 27 is she had heard reports about Jesus. She had heard something about the ministry of this one whom Mark introduces to us. And, and she thought that perhaps if she touched the hem of his garment, he might be able to purify her and heal her. It's actually a remarkable theological insight. Because in Leviticus chapter 15, it would work the other way. Anyone who was touched by this woman would become impure because of her impurity. But she has this radical theological insight that says this, perhaps if I touch Jesus, he will make me pure instead of me making him impure. And this is exactly what she does. It's, it's, a, it's a dramatic insight. It's, it's remarkable how she came to this conclusion. But she does it. And what it tells us in verse 29 is immediately when she did this, the flow of blood dried up and she was healed of her disease. Do you realize what that tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ? You may have all kinds of mistaken notions about Jesus even today. You may think, I can't identify myself with Jesus or come to Jesus for help because in a sense, I, I, I'm too impure. I'm, I'm too isolated. I'm too broken. But don't you see the lesson, one of the lessons of this encounter is that this woman doesn't transfer her impurity to Jesus. Jesus transfers his purity to this woman. And of course, that's... That's how substitution works in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was just talking to someone right before chapel, and we were reminiscing and, and recounting the comfort that is received from our understanding of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ to those who are in him through faith. What we were talking about was the fact that the scriptures are clear 
when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are in Him through faith, His righteousness is credited to your account. I, I, I can hardly wrap my head around that. I don't know about you. But this woman perceived something of that and gave a very visible illustration of that reality. His purity goes to her. His healing goes to her. Her impurity does not transfer to him in the same way. Amen. And here's how Jesus responds in verse 30. Jesus, it says, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, I think this is actually a remarkable verse. It's caused questions to be raised in some people's minds. They've said, well, wait a minute. How, how does this work? Jesus only has a finite amount of power. Is that what's happening? Jesus sort of feels the battery getting discharged from him and, and, and he turns around and wonders how that happened. Is that what it means by power had gone out of him? I don't think that's at all what, what we should take from this verse. I don't even believe that's what the grammar demands of us in this verse. Uh, there's another translation that I think puts it in a way that perhaps might be a little bit clearer. It says, the power proceeding from him had gone forth. That's what Jesus is perceiving. Now, now there's a reason why I think Mark tries to highlight the fact that this power is proceeding from Jesus and Jesus is aware of it. And the reason is because in Mark's gospel, he's very clear that the ministry of Jesus is actually the ministry of the triune God working in and through Jesus. This is why Mark is careful to talk to us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in, in Jesus' life, in Jesus' life of prayer to the Father. And I think that's what's being emphasized here. It's, it's not that this is an impersonal power that leaves Jesus somehow. It's actually that it's a Trinitarian work of God that's taking place that we're seeing right here. And of course, this is also true of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read through Ephesians chapter 1 and that outline of how it is that we were redeemed by the Lord. We see it's a work of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God. And this is what we see here. And then Jesus asks this question. This question has also uh, caused people to have some concerns. He says, who touched my garments? And, and some have said, well, does that mean that Jesus actually didn't know what was going on? Uh, did he not know who it was who had just been healed? But of course, if you know your Bible at all, you know how foolish uh, an explanation that would be. In the very beginning of the scriptures, we see God frequently asking questions of people in order to show, to elicit something that is true of them. Think about the Garden of Eden. Remember what happens right after the fall? The Lord God calls out in the garden, Adam, where are you? Did God not know where he was? Of course not. But it's that question that leads to Adam's declaration, we were ashamed because we knew we were naked and we hid from you. And then God says, have you eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, of course, again, the text is clear. God knew that. God knew that that had happened. But what does that elicit from Adam? Well, it elicits this clear indication, not only of his own guilt and culpability, but also of the transformation that had taken place in his life because of sin. Because what does he say? The woman that you gave me, she handed it to me and I ate. He blames her. 
blames God. And you see, the same thing happens here. Jesus asks this question, not because he lacks information, but because he's trying to elicit this response, which is so central to this whole account. In fact, really, it's at the heart, both of the story of Jairus' daughter and of the story of the women with the issue of blood. Look at what happens in verse 33 and 34. If you were going to underline verses in this text, these would be the verses to underline. He looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. See, that's really one of the central truths of this text. The power of Jesus, yes. The purification that Jesus provides, yes. Even as we'll see, the resurrection power that Jesus provides. But how is it that people like us and like this woman, how is it that we, as it were, grab a hold of, grasp a hold of, that which God has done for us in Christ? Well, it's very clear here, as it's very clear in the rest of the New Testament, it's through faith alone. You don't have to turn to the Apostle Paul to see the doctrine of justification through faith alone. Jesus, in a sense, highlights it here by asking this pertinent question of the woman. Who, who is it who did this? And she comes up, and then he has the opportunity to say to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You're healed of your disease. Now we'll switch back to the first story and then try to draw some conclusions from both of them together. While this is happening, uh, Mark's clear that this is all kind of happening in, a in moments of quick succession. While this is taking place, messengers come to Jairus, who apparently is with Jesus at this time, as they're making the way, their way to Jairus' house, messengers come out to Jairus and they say, there's no need for the teacher to come anymore. Uh, we have to inform you that your daughter has died. And again, we probably can't quite put ourselves in Jairus' shoes at this point. Or even the, the shoes of those who are crowded around. Uh, just as they were making their way to the home, just as Jairus has, had exercised such faith in coming to Jesus and falling at his feet, he gets this news, your daughter's dead, uh, there's no more possibility of healing, there's no more chance of Jesus being able to do anything to help her. Now what does Jesus say in verse 36? Well, he calls Jairus, to the same thing that he highlights in the woman with the issue of blood. He calls Jairus to just believe. He calls him to faith alone. And then he follows him and he takes just a few of the disciples and he comes to the house and there are all kinds of people already crying and gathered around mourning with this great synagogue official. And, and Jesus says the child isn't dead but sleeping and they they think that he's lost his mind. They're not quite sure what sort of sick joke Jesus is making. And, and he goes to meet with the child. 
And in verse 41, it says, taking her by the hand, he says, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And she got up and began walking, and they were immediately overcome by amazement. Now, there are some questions we need to ask at this point. We need to ask the question, why are these two stories put together? And I've suggested some reasons already. I've suggested some ways in which these stories individually, but then especially together, highlight certain features of Jesus' ministry, highlight certain truths that are still very relevant today in our lives. I've suggested and, I, and I've shown you that, that the focal point of both of these stories has to do with faith alone in Jesus alone. And that, of course, is a great truth, an important truth. If you are relying on anything else but what Christ has done for you, for your salvation, the scriptures say you are, you are lost. Uh, if, you are, if you think that it is through some merit of your own, some obedience to either the law of God or a personal standard on which you've been raised or some other standard, if, if you think that that is what secures your identity in Jesus Christ, then the scriptures say you have veered off course. It's another gospel with no power to save, with no ability to offer you any assurance at all, uh, with no hope and confidence as you face the most difficult parts of life and then eventually death itself. No, it's faith alone in Christ alone, that this text emphasizes. You know, there, there are other superficial connections that Mark is making to draw our attention to these stories. It's interesting to note that the woman had an issue of blood for 12 years, and, and the girl was only 12 years old. Uh, these are interesting connections. I don't know that Mark has a particular theological reason for drawing them out, but again, they connect the two stories together. But it's interesting to note that regardless of the differences between these two people, it still comes back to faith alone in Christ alone. Whether you're in Jairus' situation, it's faith alone in Christ alone. Whether you're in this desperate situation of the woman with the issue of blood, it's faith alone in Christ alone. And the reason why we can trust in Christ alone is because it is abundantly clear in this text that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone has the ability to do the things that are necessary to be done in our lives. There was no one else, either in religious circles or outside of religious circles, that could do anything for this woman with the issue of blood. Not only was her condition beyond the hope of anyone in the medical community, it was certainly beyond the scope of any, anything that anyone in the religious community could do. And, and Jairus' daughter was not only sick and in need of healing, she was dead in need of resurrection. Uh, no one but Jesus can do those kinds of things. And perhaps our failure to take hold of Jesus in faith stems from the fact that we don't see ourselves in that kind of desperate need. Uh, perhaps we don't see ourselves as dead in our trespasses and sins, as the scriptures tell us we are by nature. Uh, 
Perhaps we don't see ourselves as impure, with even our attempts at good works being as filthy rags. Perhaps we haven't reached the point where we can say with the Apostle Paul, all these accomplishments that I've attained, all these opportunities that were given to me by virtue of my birth, I consider as nothing in view of the surpassing greatness of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing Him and the power of His resurrection. So we see all of that here. Jesus' power over disease, over death, Jesus' superiority, Jesus and Jesus alone as the one who is able to deal with these things. But I want you to notice something else about both of these instances. Jesus is the one with power and it's through faith alone that we grasp a hold of Christ. But you know, the Christ of Scripture doesn't always work the way we would want Him to work. And that's actually clear in this text. What did Jairus hope to gain from Jesus? Well, he hoped to actually have his sick daughter healed. And what does Jesus do? Jesus allows his daughter to die before raising her to new life. This woman suffered for 12 years before she encountered the Savior. And it's not until this point where she reaches out to him in a crowd that in fact she receives this purification that she so desperately needed. If you come to Jesus, recognize this. He is the only one who is able to heal and raise you from the dead spiritually. But Jesus doesn't always operate in the way you might expect. Uh, Think about what Jesus does even with his close friends. You remember the story of Lazarus. Mary and Martha call Jesus and ask him to come down and heal Lazarus. And Jesus actually waits for several days before doing it. Then and only then does he come down after Lazarus has died. After Lazarus has been dead for some time. And it's only then that Jesus does what he does in order to display the glory of God. Jesus doesn't always work in our lives the way we want him to work. The way we expect him to work the way we think he ought to work, the way that might seem best to us. It's the same thing uh, in all of our lives today. And then finally, I would say this. Did you notice this detail in each of the stories? Jesus, although he has this resurrection power, this purifying power, Jesus refuses in every case To simply be a kind of it. Jesus will not be a kind of spiritual vending machine for the people in these stories. He he will not do that for Jairus. He will not do that for Jairus' daughter. He won't do it for the woman with the issue of blood. Did you notice that beautiful detail? Both with the woman and with Jairus' daughter. How does Jesus refer to them at the end? Daughter very intimate and personal connection. He calls this woman daughter in verse 34. And with Jairus' daughter, he calls her little girl and refers to her as a daughter as well. No, Jesus, you see, when he's united to you through faith, when you 
grab a hold of Christ and His benefits through faith alone. No, He he won't be a spiritual vending machine. He desires, in fact, requires a relationship with those who are united to Him through faith. If He saves you, He has a relationship with you. If you're justified, you're adopted. That's the message of the Scriptures. That's the message of the Gospel. And if perhaps you have learned of Christ simply as a a term, a, a word that you've used in order to escape some some spiritual fate that you don't want to befall you. Perhaps you haven't learned Christ at all. Because the Christ of Scripture is the Christ who comes, who alone can heal, purify, and raise from the dead. And then who calls us brothers and sisters and God's own sons and daughters. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your word and for its many treasures. We thank you most of all for its teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his living ministry in our lives and his work on our behalf and his intercession even now for us. Father, may our eyes be fixed on him and him alone. And may we desire to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified that we may in some way share his resurrection power. We ask all of this in the name of that same one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.